Chapter Twenty One of the First Violin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Violin by Jesse Fothergill. Chapter Twenty One. And nearer still shall further be, and words shall plague and vex and buffet thee. It was December, close upon Christmas. Winter at last, in real earnest. A black frost, the earth bound in fetters of iron. The land grey, the sky steel, the wind a dagger. The trees, leafless and stark, rattled their shrivelled boughs together in that wind. It met you at corners and froze the words out of your mouth. It whistled a low, fiendish, malignant whistle round the houses, as vicious and little louder than the buzz of a mosquito. It swept thin, keen, and cutting down the conigsellier, and blew fine black dust into one's face. It cut up the skaters upon the pond in the Neuanlage, which was in the centre of the town and comparatively sheltered, but it was in its glory whistling across the flat fields leading to the great skating-ground of Elberthal in general. The Schwannenspiegel at the Grafenbergerdal. The Grafenberg was a chain of what, for want of a better name, may be called hills, lying to the north of Elberthal. The country all around this unfortunate apology for a range of hills was, if possible, flatter than ever. The Grafenberger Dial was properly no dale at all, but a broad plain of meadows, with the railway cutting them at one point, then diverging and running on under the Grafenberg. One vast meadow, which lay, if possible, a trifle lower than the rest, was flooded regularly by the autumn rains, but not deeply. It was frozen over now, and formed a model skating-place and so apparently thought the townspeople for they came out singly or in bodies and from nine in the morning till dusk the place was crowded and the merry music of the iron on the ice ceased not for a second i discovered this place of resort by accident one day when i was taking a constitutional and found myself upon the borders of the great frozen mere covered with skaters i stood looking at them and my blood warmed at the sight if there were one thing one accomplishment upon which i prided myself it was this very one skating in a drawing-room i might feel awkward confused among clever people bashful among accomplished ones shy about music and painting diffident as to my voice and deprecatory in spirit as to the etiquette to be observed at a dinner-party give me my skates and put me on a sheet of ice and i was at home as i paused and watched the skaters it struck me that there was no reason at all why I should deny myself that seasonable enjoyment. I had my skates, and the mere was large enough to hold me as well as the others. Indeed, I saw in the distance great tracks of virgin ice to which no skater seemed yet to have reached. I went home, and on the following afternoon carried out my resolution, though it was after three o'clock before I could set out. A long bleak way, first up the merry Jägerhofstrasse, then through the Malkassengarden, up a narrow lane, then out upon the open bleak road, with that bitter wind going ping-ping at one's ears and upon one's cheek, through a big gateway and a courtyard pertaining to an orphan asylum, along a lane bordered with apple-trees, through a rustic arch, and hurrah! the field was before me, not so thickly covered as yesterday, for it was getting late, and the Elbertholers did not seem to understand the joy of careering over the black ice by moonlight in the night wind. It was, however, as yet far from dark, and the moon was rising in silver yonder, in a sky of a pale but clear blue, 
i quickly put on my skates stumbled to the edge and set off i took a few turns circling among the people then seeing several turn to look at me i fixed my eyes upon a distant clump of reeds rising from the ice and resolved to make it my goal i could only just see it even with my long-sighted eyes but struck out for it bravely past group after group of skaters who turned to look at my scarlet shawl as it flashed past i glanced at them and skimmed smoothly on till i came to the outside circle where there was a skater all alone his hands thrust deep into his grey coat pockets the collar of the same turned high about his ears and the inevitable little grey cloth studentenhut crowning the luxuriance of waving dark hair he was gliding round in complicated figures and circles doing the outside edge for his own solitary satisfaction so far as i could see active graceful and muscular with practised ease and assured strength in every limb it needed no second glance on my part to assure me who he was even if the dark bright eyes had not been caught by the flash of my cloak and gravely raised for a moment as i flew by i dashed on breasting the wind to reach the bunch of weeds seemed more than ever desirable now i would make it my sole companion until it was time to go away at least he had seen me and i was safe from any contretemps he would avoid me as strenuously as i avoided him but the first fresh lust after pleasure was gone just one moment's glance into a face had had the power to alter everything so much i skated on as fast as surely as ever but a joy has taken flight the pleasant sensation of solitude which i could so easily have felt among a thousand people had he not been counted among them was gone the roll of my skates upon the ice had lost its music for me the wind felt colder i sadder at least i thought so should i go away again now that this disturbing element had appeared upon the scene no 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 said something eagerly within me i bit my lip and choked back a kind of sob of disgust as i realized that despite my gloomy reflections my heart was beating a high rapid march of joy as i skimmed along alone far away from the crowd among the dismal withered reeds and round the little inlets of stiffened grass and rushes which were frozen upright in their places the daylight faded and the moon rose the people were going away again the distant buzz of laughter had grown silent i could dimly discern some few groups but very few still left and one or two solitary figures even my preternatural eagerness could not discern who they were the darkness the long walk home the pulbert seven which i should be too tired to attend all had quite slipped from my mind it was possible that among those figures which i still dimly saw was yet remaining that of courvoisier and surely there was no harm in my staying here i struck out in another direction and flew on in the keen air the frosty moon shedding a weird light upon the black ice i saw the railway lines polished gleaming too in the light the belt of dark firs to my right the red sand soil frozen hard and silvered over with frost flat and tame but still beautiful i felt a kind of rejoicing in it i felt it home i was probably the first person who had been there since the freezing of the mere thought i and that idea was converted to a certainty in my mind for in a second my rapid career was interrupted 
at the furthest point from help or human presence the ice gave way with a crash and i shrieked aloud at the shock of the bitter water oh how cold it was how piercing frightfully numbing it was not deep scarcely above my knees but the difficulty was how to get out put my hand where i would the ice gave way i could only plunge in the icy water feeling the sodden grass under my feet what sort of things might there not be in the water a cold shudder worse than any ice shot through me at the idea of newts and rats and water serpents absurd though it was i screamed again in desperation and tried to haul myself out by catching at the rushes they were rotten with the frost and gave way in my hand i made a frantic effort at the ice again stumbled and fell on my knees in the water i was wet all over now and i gasped my limbs ached agonizingly with the cold i should be if not drowned yet benumbed frozen to death here alone in the great mere among the frozen reeds and under the steely sky i was pausing standing still and rapidly becoming almost too benumbed to think or hold myself up when i heard the sound of skates and the weird measure of leonore's march again i held my breath i desired intensely to call out shriek aloud for help but i could not not a word would come i did hear someone he muttered and then in the moonlight he came skating past saw me and stopped the fräulein he began quickly and then altering his tone the ice has broken let me help you don't come too near the ice is very thin it doesn't hold at all i chattered scarcely able to get the words out you are cold he asked and smiled i felt the smile cruel and realized that i probably looked rather ridiculous cold i repeated with an irrepressible short sob he knelt down upon the ice at about a yard's distance from me here it is strong said he holding out his arms lean this way mein fräulein and i will lift you out oh no you will certainly fall in yourself do as i tell you he said imperatively and i obeyed leaning a little forward he took me round the waist lifted me quietly out of the water and placed me upon the ice at a discreet distance from the hole in which i had been stuck then rose himself apparently undisturbed by the effort miserable degraded object that i felt my clothes clinging round me icy cold shivering from head to foot so aching with cold that i could no longer stand as he opened his mouth to say something about its being happily accomplished i sunk upon my knees at his feet my strength had deserted me i could no longer support myself frozen he remarked to himself as he stooped and half raised me i see what must be done let me take off your skates sonst geht's nicht i sat down on the ice half hysterical partly from the sense of the degrading ludicrous plight i was in partly from intense yet painful delight at being thus once again with him seeing some recognition in his eyes again and hearing some cordiality in his voice he unfastened my skates deftly and quickly slung them over his arm and helped me up again i essayed feebly to walk but my limbs were numb with cold i could not put one foot before the other but could only cling to his arm in silence so said he with a little laugh we are all alone here a fine time for a moonlight skating ah yes said i wearily 
but I can't move. You need not, said he. I am going to carry you away in spite of yourself, like a popular preacher. He put his arm round my waist and bade me hold fast to his shoulder. I obeyed and directly found myself carried along in a swift, delightful movement, which seemed to my drowsy, deadened senses quick as the nimble air, smooth as a swallow's flight. He was a consummate master in the art of skating, that was evident. A strong, unfailing arm held me fast. I felt no sense of danger, no fear lest he should fall or stumble. No such idea entered my head. We had far to go, from one end of the Schwanenspiegel to the other. Despite the rapid motion, numbness overcame me. My eyes closed, my head sunk upon my hands, which were clasped over his shoulder. A sob rose to my throat. In the midst of the torpor that was stealing over me, there shot every now and then a shiver of ecstasy so keen as to almost terrify me. But then even that died away. Everything seemed to whirl round me, the meadows and trees, the stiff rushes and the great black sheet of ice, and the white moon in the inky heavens became only a confused dream. Was it sleep or faintness or coma? What was it that seemed to make my senses as dull as my limbs and as heavy? I scarcely felt the movement as he lifted me from the ice to the ground. His shout did not waken me, though he sent the full power of his voice ringing out toward the pile of buildings to our left. With the last echo of his voice I lost consciousness entirely. All failed and faded, and then vanished before me, until I opened my eyes again feebly and found myself in a great stony-looking room before a big black stove, the door of which was thrown open. I was lying upon a sofa, and a woman was bending over me. At the foot of the sofa, leaning against the wall, was Courvoisier looking down at me, his arms folded, his face pensive. "'Oh, dear!' cried I, starting up. "'What is the matter? I must go home!' "'You shall, when you can.' said Courvoisier, smiling, as he had smiled when I first knew him, before all these miserable misunderstandings had come between us. My apprehensions were stilled. It did me good, warmed me, sent the tears trembling to my eyes, when I found that his voice had not resumed the old accent of ice, nor his eyes that cool, unrecognising stare which had frozen me so many a time in the last few weeks. Trunken Simal, Fräulein! said the woman, holding a glass to my lips. It held hot spirits and water which smoked. Bah, replied I gratefully, and turning away. Nee, nee, she repeated. You must drink just a schnäppchen, Fräulein. I pushed it away with some disgust. Courvoisier took it from her hand and held it to me. Don't be so foolish and childish. Think of your voice after this, said he, smiling kindly. And I, with an odd sensation, choked down my tears and drank it it was bad despite my desire to please i found it very bad yes i know said he with a sympathetic look as i made a horrible face after drinking it and he took the glass and now this woman will lend you some dry things shall i go straight away to elbertal and send a drosky here for you or will you try to walk home oh i will walk i'm sure it would be the best if do you think it would do you feel equal to it is the question he answered 
and i was surprised to see that though i was looking hard at him he did not look at me but only into the glass he held yes said i and they say that people who have been nearly drowned should always walk it does them good in that case then said he repressing a smile i should say it would be better for you to try but pray make haste and get your wet things off or you will come to serious harm i will be as quick as ever i can now hurry he replied sitting down and pulling one of the woman's children toward him come on junge tell me how old you are i followed the woman to an inner room where she divested me of my dripping things and attired me in a costume constituting of a short full brown petticoat a blue woollen jacket thick blue knitted stockings and a pair of wide low shoes which habiliments constituted the uniform of the orphan asylum of which she was matron and belonged to her niece she expatiated upon the warmth of the dress and did not produce any outer wrap or shawl and i only anxious to go said nothing but twisted up my loose hair and went back into the large stony room before spoken of from which a great noise had been proceeding for some time i stood in the doorway and saw eugen surrounded by other children in addition to the one he had first called to him there were likewise two dogs and they the children and the dogs and here constant meister courvoisier most of all were making as much noise as they possibly could i paused for a moment to have the small gratification of watching the scene one child on his knee and one on his shoulder pulling his hair which was all ruffled and on end a dancing light in his eyes as if he felt happy and at home among all the little flaxen heads could he be the same man who had behaved so coldly to me my heart went out to him in this kinder moment why was he so genial with those children and so harsh to me who was little better than a child myself his eye fell upon me as he held a shouting and kicking child high in the air and his own face laughed all over in mirth and enjoyment come here miss wedderburn this is hans there is fritz and here is franz a jolly trio aren't they he put the child into his mother's arms who regarded him with an eye of approval and told him that it was not every one who knew how to ingratiate himself with her children who were uncommonly spirited ready he asked surveying me in my costume and laughing don't you feel a stranger in these garments no why i should have said silk and lace and velvet or fine muslins and embroideries were more your style you are quite mistaken i was just thinking how admirably this costume suits me and that i should do well to adopt it permanently perhaps there was a mirror in the inner room he suggested a mirror why then your idea would quite be accounted for young ladies must of course wish to wear that which becomes them very becoming i sneered grandly very he replied emphatically it makes me wish to be an orphan ah oh, mine here said the woman reproachfully for he had spoken german don't jest about that if you have parents no i haven't he interposed hastily or children either i should not else have understood yours so well he laughed come my miss wedderburn if you are ready after arranging with the woman that she should dry my things and return them receiving her own in exchange we left the house 
It was quite moonlight now. The last faint streak of twilight had disappeared. The way that we must traverse to reach the town stretched before us, long, straight, and flat. "'Where is your shawl?' he asked suddenly. "'I left it. It was wet through.' Before I knew what he was doing, he had stripped off his heavy overcoat, and I felt its warmth and thickness about my shoulders. "'Oh, don't!' I cried as I strove to remove it again, and looked imploringly into his face. "'Don't do that. You will get cold again. You will—' "'Get cold?' He laughed as if much amused, as he drew the coat around me and fastened it, making no more ado of my resisting hands than if they had been bits of straw. "'So!' he said, pushing one of my arms through the sleeve. Now, as he still held it fastened together, and looked half laughingly at me, do you intend to keep it on or not? I suppose I must. I call that gratitude. Take my arm so. You are weak yet. We walked on in silence for some time. I was happy. For the first time since the night I had heard Lohergren, I was happy and at rest. True, no forgiveness had been asked or extended, but he had ceased to behave as if I were not forgiven. "'Am I not going too fast?' he inquired. "'No.' "'Yes, I am, I see. We will moderate the pace a little.' We walked more slowly. Physically I was inexpressibly weary. The reaction after my drenching had set in. I felt a languor which amounted to pain and an aching and weakness in every limb. I tried to regret the event, but could not. Tried to wish it were not such a long walk to Elbethal, and found myself perversely regretting that it was such a short one. At length the lights of the town came in sight. I heaved a deep sigh. Soon it would be over. The glory and the dream. I think we are exactly on the way to your house, nicht wahr? said he. Yes, and to yours, since we are opposite neighbours. Yes. You are not as lonely as I am, though you have companions. Oh, Friedhelm, yes. And your little boy. Sigmund also, was all he said. But auch Sigmund may express much more in German than in English. It did so then. And you, he added. I am alone said I. I did not mean to be foolishly sentimental. The sigh that followed my words was involuntary. So you are. But I suppose you like it. Like it? What can make you think so? Well, at least you have good friends. Have I? Oh, yes, of course, said I, thinking of von Francius. Do you get on with your music? He next inquired. I hope so. I... Do you think it strange that I should live there all alone? I asked, tormented with a desire to know what he did think of me, and crassly ready to burst into explanations on the least provocation. I was destined to be undeceived. I have not thought about it at all. It is not my business. Snub number one. He had spoken quickly, as if to clear himself as much as possible from any semblance of interest to me. I went on, rashly plunging into further intricacies of conversation. It is curious that you and I should not only live near to each other, but actually have the same profession at last. How? Snub number two. But I persevered. Music, 
your profession is music and mine will be i do not see the resemblance there is little point of likeness between a young lady who is in training for a prima donna and an obscure musiker who contributes his share of shakes and runs to the symphony i in training for a prima donna how can you say so do we not all know the forte of herr von francius and excuse me are not your windows opposite to ours and open as a rule can i not hear the music you practice and shall i not believe my own ears i am sure your own ears do not tell you that a future prima donna lives opposite to you said i feeling most insanely and unreasonably hurt and cut up at the idea will you tell me that you are not studying for the stage i never said i was not i said i was not a future prima donna my voice is not half good enough i am not clever enough either he laughed as if voice or cleverness had anything to do with it personal appearance and friends at court are the chief things i have known prima donne seen them i mean and from my place with all the footlights i have heard an impertinence to judge them upon their own merit provided they were handsome impudent and unscrupulous enough their public seemed gladly to dispense with arts cultivation or genius in their performances and conceptions and do you think that i or shall be in time handsome impudent and unscrupulous enough said i in a low choked tone my fleeting joy was being thrust back by hands most ruthless unmixed satisfaction for even the brief space of an hour or so was not to be included in my lot <laughs> said he with a little laugh that chilled me still further i think no such thing the beauty is there mein fräulein pardon me for saying so indeed i was well able to pardon it had he been informing his grandmother that there were the remains of a handsome woman to be traced in her he could not have spoken more enthusiastically the beauty is there the rest as i said when one has friends these things are arranged for one but i have no friends no again with that dry little laugh perhaps they will be provided at the proper time as elijah was fed by the ravens some fine night who knows i may sit with my violin in the orchestra at your benefit and one of the bouquets with which you are smothered may fall at my feet and bring me out der fuge when that happens will you forgive me if i break a rose from the bouquet before i toss it on to the feet of its rightful owner i promise that i will seek for no note or spy out any ring or bracelet i will only keep the rose in the remembrance of the night when i skated with you across the schwannenspiegel and prophesied unto you the future it will be a kind of i told you so on my part mock sentiment mock respect mock admiration a sneer in the voice a dry sarcasm in the words what was i to think why did he veer round in this way and from protecting kindness return to a raillery which was more cruel than his silence my blood rose though at the mockingness of his tone i don't know what you mean said i coldly i'm studying operatic music if i have any success in that line i shall devote myself to it what is there wrong in it the person who has her living to gain must use the talents that have been given to her my talent is my voice it is the only thing i have except perhaps some capacity to love those who are kind to me 
I can do that, thank God. Beyond that, I have nothing. And I did not make myself. The capacity to love those who are kind to you, he said hastily. And do you love all who are kind to you? Yes, said I starkly, though I felt my face burning. And hate them that despitefully use you? Naturally, said I with a somewhat unsteady laugh. A rush of my unruling feeling, propriety and decent reserve, tied my tongue, and I could not say, not all, not always. He, however, snapped, as it were, at my remark or admission, and chose to take it as if it were in the deepest earnest. For he said quickly, decisively, and, as I thought, with a kind of exultation, Ah, then I will be disagreeable to you. This remark, and the tone in which it was uttered, came upon me with a shock which I cannot express. He would be disagreeable to me, because I hated those who were disagreeable to me. Ergo, he wished me to hate him. But why? What was the meaning of the whole extraordinary proceeding? Why? I asked mechanically, and asked nothing more. Because then you will hate me, unless you have the good sense to do so already. Why? What effect will my hatred have upon you? None. Not a jot. Gar keine. But I wish you to hate me, nevertheless. So you have begun to be disagreeable to me by pulling me out of the water, lending me your coat, and giving me your arm all along this hard, lonely road, said I composedly. He laughed. That was before I knew of your peculiarity. From tomorrow morning on, I shall begin. I will make you hate me. I shall be glad if you hate me. I said nothing. My head felt bewildered, my understanding benumbed. I was conscious that I was very weary, conscious that I should like to cry. So bitter was my disappointment. As we came within the town, I said, I'm very sorry, Herr Courvoisier, to have given you so much trouble. That means that I am to put you into a cab and relieve you of my company. It does not! I ejaculated passionately, jerking my hand out of his arm. How can you say so? How dare you say so? You might meet some of your friends, you know. And I tell you I have no friends except Herr von Francius, and I am not accountable to him for my actions. We shall soon be at your house now. Herr Courvoisier, have you forgiven me? Forgiven you what? My rudeness to you once. Ah, mein Fräulein said he, shrugging his shoulders a little, and smiling slightly. You are under a delusion about that circumstance. How can I forgive that which I never resented? This was putting the matter in a new, and for me, an humble light. Never resented? I murmured confusedly. Never. Why should I resent it? I forgot myself, nicht wahr? And you showed me at one and the same time my proper place and your own excellent good sense. You did not wish to know me, and I did not resent it. I had no right to resent it. Excuse me, said I, my voice vibrating against my will. You are wrong there, and either you are purposely saying what is not true, or you have not the feelings of a gentleman. His arm sprung a little aside as I went on, amazed at my own boldness. I did not show you your proper place, I did not show my own good sense. I showed my ignorance, vanity, and surprise. 
if you do not know that you are not what i take you for a gentleman perhaps not said he after a pause you certainly did not take me for one then why should i be a gentleman what makes you suppose i am one questions which however satisfactorily i might answer them to myself i could not well reply in words i felt that i had rushed upon a topic which could not be explained since he would not own himself offended i had made a fool of myself and gained nothing by it while i was racking my brain for some satisfactory closing remark we turned a corner and came into the vehan a clock struck seven gott in himmel he exclaimed seven o'clock the opera after da geht's schon an excuse me fräulein i must go ah here is your house he took the coat gently from my shoulders wished me gute besserung and ringing the bell made me a profound bow and either not noticing or not choosing to notice the hand which i stretched out toward him strode off hastily toward the theatre leaving me cold sick and miserable to digest my humble pie with what appetite i might End of chapter 21